and welcome to the Dicer Screaming Podcast. <gasps> oh, nice one. Yeah, hey, I'm Randy. I'm Mike. Yeah, and we're coming at you with a brand new podcast. Hey, welcome folks. We are doing it recorded today. Hey, wait, when have we not done recorded? I... Yeah, right. Yeah, uh, we don't. So, hey, we like to pretend it's a show, so welcome to it. And, uh, of course... <laughs> it is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> the Calliope Specialized Bard of Gaming Podcast. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, here at the uh, Dicey Screaming Podcast, quality is not our top priority. And you can tell that, by the way, we treat quality. <laughs> we take it out to a rock quarry and... Or a forlorn swamp and uh, wrap it in plastic, weigh it down, and uh, wait for the bubbles to stop coming up and drive away and never talk about it again. <laughs> that or we, we, we find a quality and we take it out to a pig farm at four o'clock in the morning and, uh, you know, we, we don't leave until we make absolutely sure that the bones have stopped crunching there in the pit. So. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Our, uh, <laughs> definitely a dark turn there. Oh. Hey, hey, how you doing, folks? Hi, hi. Yeah. That's us. That's us. That's what uh, we do with quality around here. Yeah, and uh, we hope you enjoy our little podcast. We bring you some nice topic today. And, um, you know, as Collins from Jason, Jason has a lot to share with us on our superhero episode of oh, Review probably. of Champions. I kind of rolled that one together because, yeah, we can spend some time talking about champions, and there's a lot of things to say. Both good and bad about it. I think over the years, Champions has uh, shown itself, but um, I like that uh, he chose to react quite a bit to uh, that podcast. It seemed touched a nerve with him, so we'll get to that in just oh. a minute. But Because uh, we also rolled in there the superhero content as well and the, the end of the Bronze Age of superhero gaming. The uh, paleontology of superhero gaming is, as well as the genre itself is a fascinating topic, and well, you know, we've kind of touched on both in the previous podcasts uh, about various types of the genres and how superheroes have affected not only popular culture, well, just look around at the Marvelverse, uh, WandaVision right now, running amok on the Disney Plus. Oh, yeah, I'm doing quite well. Yeah, kind of kind of a weird thing. I, I might have liked to have talked about that in a different venue than gaming because, well, there's just not a whole lot Marvel gaming about that, but yeah, I, look, dude. you got to get very specific into the Marvel superheroes, and let's face it, there's a couple Marvel superhero games out there. True, that uh, have been tried, and probably the most successful that our audience will respond to is the Marvel superheroes game back from TSR back in the day, which was an outstanding product. But uh, you know, again, that uh, comes with its own content. We'll get into in a minute. Um, hmm. So, yeah, just uh, kind of rambling on, running out of gas on this one. I just uh, had to say that I'm really appreciative of Jason taking his time out uh, for letting us know what he thought about this and how people positively responded to it. So I, I was quite taken. I'm oh, glad to bro. see that uh, Champion still carries forth a little bit of a charm to its day. But uh, Oh, it does. I mean, it, admittedly, uh, I was more of a thorn in the side at the time that we first unveiled it. I mean, I kept oh, trying to yeah. make characters that were just... I'll admit it now, they were terrible ideas, and they were probably not well-suited for gameplay. Uh, wasn't, a, wasn't I, was it the champion systems where I tried to make uh, 
Captain Machismo, which was entirely based on Andrew Dice Clay. Yes. <laughs> uh, his taunt skills were through the roof. Okay, his ego attacks were going to be. Fantastic. Oh yeah, he was. He was the <laughs> ego attack character. <laughs> but you know, in spite of all that, we had a lot of good times. Well, uh, yeah. You I mean, you did me still about... pat it out with uh, that he was a stand-up comedian. I like that you still kept to the core, and I, I think that it shows the strength of the system in and of itself. That you can take even joke characters and make them a viable alternative to, say, the more serious, straight-laced characters. Yeah, I mean, honestly. Uh, to be honest, you were no different were... than the, their iconic character, the Rose, who was an ego attack character. Yeah. and the, the rules already embraced that core concept of, like, hey, let's let some humor, uh, which is also part of the comic medium... Yes. Uh, intersect with the superheroics and the the plot development. You Paste, know? Pot, Pete, and Polka Dot Man, we're looking at you. <laughs> uh, but in spite of the funny characters and the silliness periodically, I do remember good times being had. Yeah, you liked having the pisticups. When you did get into pisticups with the character, it did start to shine a little bit on you. Yeah. And that's what well, we wanted to get into. But anyway, All Jason right. has a lot to get into, so yeah. let's get into that. Okay, guys, Jason here. Um, Champions. So, you know, I've never played Champions. I have some of those hero books. I have Fantasy Hero and some other books I had back in the day. But I've never played Hero either. I mean, I made characters in Hero, but I never played it. And I and I think I had Martial Arts Hero too, something like that. But but yeah, I've never played those. Definitely Champions be something I'll have to check out. You know, I've done GURPS. I've done Mutants and Masterminds is the, the newer superhero game I've, I've had and I've played, third edition, which is fine. Um, does a decent job. Of course, I grew up with Marvel superheroes, DC, but Marvel mainly. TSR Marvel was the second game I really had. That and the Mincer, you know, Redbox were, were my two first RPGs, for, you know, for all practical purposes. And, and Marvel superheroes was the first one I GM'd. Um, you, you started comparing the dice pools and stuff with Champions 3rd Edition to Shadowrun, and I was about to just turn it off and put it away forever. And then you mentioned tunnels and trolls so that redeemed it a little bit so, so i'll definitely check it out the, the other thing i want to mention that's going to be a little bit controversial here you, you talked about the sh the shift in comic books and and watchmen and while watchmen was very influential to those of us that were really into the scene and into other creators you, you know you left out something that that was probably more influential in the long run than watchmen believe it or not and that would be Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns, which was published a few months before Watchmen. And I, I'm not looking at the dates, but I know it, 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 it was published prior, the same year, but prior to Watchmen. They were projects that were developed concurrently, of course. I'm not saying that Frank Miller influenced Alan Moore. I'm just stating that it you hit the newsstands first. But Dark Knight Returns, for, especially the public, has a much longer history, is still visible and still thought of. I mean, look at Batman v Superman, right? Dawn of Justice, or whatever it was. Um, you, you know, The Dark Knight Returns, I think, has stayed in the public mind more than Watchmen, where Watchmen is much more of a niche product for geeks. And although Watchmen is, and I'm not taking anything away from it. I remember Watchmen back in the day. Watchmen's great. Um, but... Yeah, I think Dark Knight Returns and Frank Miller deserve some credit here. I, I really do. And, and uh, 
and, and we shouldn't gloss over that um, be, because the long-lasting effects arguably are just as much Frank Miller's as they are Alan Moore's. It's even to the point where if you look up Watchmen, like go to Wikipedia <laughs> and Dark Knight Returns and Frank Miller are referenced on the Watchmen Wikipedia page. I mean, they you, you can't escape it. Even though I know Frank Miller's looked at in a negative way by everybody because of his, you know, he kind of went off the rails far on one side of the political spectrum for a while there. Um, and and obviously he can't direct worth a, worth a hoot when you look at um, the spirit. But regardless of that, I, 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 I don't think it's fair to ignore the influence that um, The Dark Knight Returns had. Along with the Watchmen, I think they're both very influential. I'm not taking anything from Watchmen either, and Watchmen's definitely a superior story, and superiorly craft, better crafted. No question about that. I, I think both are are very interesting and, and very good. But and Dark Knight Returns has Batman killing somebody, has him shooting the guy with the M60. You can't forget that. So you know, he. he I, I don't know. I, both of the both those comics are have some amazing scenes in there. Watchmen, of course, is much, much more intellectual, much better done on that level. But, but I think Dark Knight Returns, well, well, you can see it. You can see the influence there. You know, when you when you look at media and you look at things. Uh, I mean, you know, and even when you watch things like, you know, your commentaries and, and your interviews back, the making of, back when the first Michael Keaton Batman movie. You know, they you know, cited Dark Knight Returns has a big influence on that movie, which of course Michael Keaton is still the best Batman, you know, and, and I'm happy to fight anybody that wants to argue that. But that said, enjoyed the show. I'm definitely going to check out some of these old editions of Champions, check it because always interested in superhero games. So with that, I look forward to your next episode. Take care. Oh, well, okay. Uh, there's a lot to unpack with that. So, all right, let's start with the first part is the Champions game. Okay, oh, so yeah. if you think we were comparing it to Shadowrun, it was just during the oh. complexity of character creation is what I was referring to. The system really doesn't apply well to Tunnels and Trolls, just the one in sixes sort of rule, which, okay, you know, that's a thing. So if you were going into it thinking that there was going to be a lot going on with Tunnels and Trolls, uh, you're not going to find a whole lot. So No, so. I, I wouldn't say there are any strong similarities. Uh, you know, there are some tertiary, like just, just purely secondary similarities uh, that you might be able to recognize, but I, I would not say that there's... There's nothing that a DM or a good game rules mechanic would look upon and recognize as extremely similar. Just just some minor things. No, and also, it's not a dice pool system. It's just three dice, six. But it's the dice for damage and attacks and things like that. Yeah, it does get a little uh, weighty, I guess. The biggest thing is once you learn the... Nomenclature and the rhythm and method of yeah, playing I, it, it it falls into places. It's just a, it's a little bit of a learning curve, and I I compare it to things like Eve, where the learning curve is so steep that it ends in nothing but a precipitous precipitous cliff that hurls you downwards onto sharp jagged rocks below, and the sea <laughs> washes your bodies away out to the. <laughs>
<laughs> we do know a few number crunchers who did well playing E. Yeah. Uh, so, but they are really good number crunchers. They you're like this could be mathier. <laughs> yeah, I think this system, Champions is one of those systems where you could say, like, I think this needs to be mathier, and that person would be hard-pressed to find a mathier system. <laughs> All right. Last, because you don't, you, because the one thing is, is that it provides a large venue for recreating the superhero genre. But, as we stated, that's in the podcast. So, but all right. So, you want to take the Watchmen thing here um, in Batman. Hey, yeah, no. Uh, tanky, grumpy Batman that kills people is not really Batman to me. And I'll die on that hill for quite a long time. But let me just say that Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns, I'm, I like it, but I'm not a fan of it um, for those reasons. But uh, as a definitive source of Batman, then we have to go back to the 1966 TV show. I mean, that looms just as large, and it's goofier, wackier, but it's a great venue for telling stories. Okay, and it had some just some of the most awesome actors ever. Sure. Uh, Frank Gorshin? Yeah. Burgess I, Meredith? Uh, uh, saying Earth exactly. Oh, Eartha Kitt. As Catwoman. Yeah, you like her. I, I, I prefer the other. But, yeah. Hey, it's their own. Uh, no. But anyway, back on yeah. to the, the part about uh, The Dark Knight Returns. Great story, but... Um, we're talking about a niche of a niche, and we're definitely talking about the superhero genre. So, Dark Knight Returns, a blip in the radar, in my opinion. Um, it has its place. It is a monumental work, and it's quoted by many. And I'm going to take it out just like we did of uh, Hanlon when we talked about uh, Robert Hanlon. We spent a lot of time talking about him, and we didn't talk about Asimov and Clark as much as I wanted to. Ah. Because you have to deal with all the baggage that comes with talking about Frank Miller. So that's why we omitted it. It was purposeful, and there's a reason for that. Um, but it has nothing to do with it, because we did mention about Miller's work on Daredevil, which was astounding. And if you want to really praise Miller as far as the definitive work of Batman, then Batman Year One would be your better choice rather than Batman The Dark Knight Returns, which was more of the... In the vein of, I would want to say, Elseworld, that they later would coin as kind of a standalone. It's a Batman who has lost Robin, who has turned his back on Gotham and the whole crime-fighting gig, and comes back as grumpy, angry tank Batman. Which, hey, the fight scene with the mutant, one of my favorites in the uh, pits. You know, I am a surgeon. This is my operating table. My father was a doctor, and I will take this man apart. Yeah, I got that part. But, you know, yeah, Batman shooting somebody, yeah, I know what Frank Miller was going for, and that's what he was trying to break. Um, year one, Batman despises people who use his guns and that. And also for the movies, hey, uh, the definitive Batman movie, if we really want to break it down, is the Dark Knight trilogy by Christopher Nolan, in which the end scene of Batman Returns, Gordon hands... Batman a card in uh, envelope, evidence envelope. Says, hey, I want you to look into this. There's a guy working in Gotham. Calls himself the Joker. At least that's what the guys down in forensics do. Leaves these calling cards behind his murder victims. And Batman takes, I'll look into it. And there you go. So, yeah, Batman versus Superman. 
Uh, I liked it, but not not a big fan of it as much as I am the yeah. Dark Knight trilogy, which is, for my money, the best superhero movie that has been done to date. And yes, I look forward to having that undone. I think uh, we might have to do a Marvel Cineverse talk about uh, some of the definitive moments they've done in there because that's becoming a thing now. But well, uh, Yeah, I mean, it's multimedia. Yeah. Now, I'm going to have to have a separate yeah. uh, response because I actually differ sharply. Uh, I'm not a huge Frank Miller fan as far as the individual, personal politics, things like that. Uh, not in any sense. However, I did love, I mean, at the same time, at the same era, you know, just months apart, uh, The Watchmen and uh, Dark Knight Returns came out, and you're correct. Uh, you know, Dark Knight Returns came out sooner. Uh, I didn't really notice because it all happened so quickly. A lot of cool things unfolded in a very, what felt like a very short period of time. Uh, Dark Knight Returns, I enjoyed it immensely. I still have my copies to this day. Uh, they are they are not very collection worthy because I have reread them often. Uh, but in terms of influence, I'm, I'm going to disagree much the way Randy did, but for a slightly different reason. I feel that Dark Knight Returns was, at that moment, considerably more influential at that time. Like, right at that moment. Because the Batman vehicle uh, reached a much wider audience than the Watchmen. The Watchmen... It was one of those things that crept up slowly like a Rocky Horror Picture Show effect, where it, it had a cult following at first, but the longer time went by, I, I f honestly think that The Watchmen had the greater impact, ultimately, while Dark Knight Returns eventually just faded into the background. Uh, and... You're right in being a little dismayed that people have forgotten about it because it was an exceptional piece of work that, by some degree, predated The Watchmen. It was incredibly gritty, uh, and it was a far darker vision of Batman mm -hmm. uh, and of the world uh, than I think people were used to at all. I mean, it it just resonated uh, and it was very much about uh, giving up and then sort of coming to your senses and realizing that you can't give up. Not really. You know, that there's, there's little other choice. That, uh, you know, you may not fix things, but giving up doesn't fix them either. So <laughs> uh, all you can really do is go out fighting. And it, it certainly struck a note with me at the time. So I consider it a much more relevant, much more enjoyable work. And whatever differences I may have with Frank Miller, uh, I leave those aside when I specifically criticize the artwork, the, the creativity, the writing, things like that. Uh, I'll focus on that. Much like with the Hanlon thing Randy mentioned, I, I feel the same way there, is that I, I'm not going to you know, give overwhelming coverage to the 
saucy tidbits because you know not trying to be scandalous here you know we're just yeah. trying to look back at good stuff so i'm i'm a little closer to with you on this one i i think that it was profoundly more influential at that time period if you were just to, to weigh and measure what happened oh. in the mid 80s that would be a bombshell that dropped and the watchman was this slow, subtle thing that expanded outward constantly and ultimately wound up, I think, having the much bigger effect. Kind of like the Velvet Underground well, comparison. That's, that's where I was going with it, but maybe I have to restate it. So, yes, uh, while we admitted the Dark Knight Returns for the reason that you end up talking more about Frank Miller, and we mentioned Frank Miller, and if I have to mention yeah, his work that. on Batman, and we're just specifically talking about Batman, I would take his work on Batman Year One, where he had an editor as a better indicator of his ability to tell a story and tell a, a proper Batman story. And a pro proper Batman story has three basic elements in it, and one of them is not killing. And The Dark Knight was more of a groundbreaker. It was set to des uh, it was designed right from the start to shatter your expectations of Batman. It was to bring him into the edgelord period that would predominate comics into the era past the Bronze Age. We really haven't given an era yet that uh, a good name that catches on. But for me, The Watchmen, what we were specifically talking about with Champions, is a superhero role-playing group. And The Watchmen was kind of that signature end. And yes, The Dark Knight had a bigger and more profound effect. I will definitely agree with that. There's no arguing that. But the long-term effect, the length that The Watchmen stayed not only on the bestseller list, but is considered by many to be the better written and more highly articulate, uh, do I want to say dissertation or do I want to say examination? So I'm just going to go with examination of the superhero genre as a storytelling vehicle itself. I think that it endures better. However, is... Oh, I forgot the movies. Well, yeah, and we did mention the Dark Knight Returns and I had the, a, the Burton. And, you know, even I think the Burton I, missed a few notes, but they're nothing bad. I mean, I, I like the Burton movies. I definitely. loved... Uh, like, I didn't think there was going to be another see, Batman you, you, I was going to like uh, until uh, Nolan's Batman came along. Because, you know, like, everything that came out after uh, Burton's Batman with Michael Keaton as the Batman, and, of course, Jack... Nicholson. Who does a impression of Jack Parr. You are my number one. Yeah, you know. This town needs an enemy. Yeah, when you uh, see Jack Nicholson riffing on Jack. Uh, just, there were a lot of things going on there in the background. And I loved that movie so much, uh, being the age I was at the time. I was so wowed by Jack Palance. Where does he get those beautiful toys? Ah, uh, I was disappointed by everything that came after that. Yeah. Nothing ever captured me quite the same way. And then along came Chris Nolan and Christian Bale's Batman. And of course, uh, you know, Heath Ledger's Joker, which ultimately became legendary. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, but it, I did not have another favorite until that time. So uh, look, I'm never going to diss Keaton's job, but I am going to say that uh, it, it took a very, like it took an entire generation span before a movie that was Batman thematic 
uh, came along that I could stand watching, and that trilogy was fantastic. Yeah, uh, I would have loved it if they had done more with Keaton uh, and Nicholson back in the day, but alas, they did not. And the the hideous period in between those two eras, I do not speak of. Yeah, even the second one, the sequel was kind of really bad. So, but all right, yeah. To sum it up, what we were trying to get on was the champions straddled that period where the Bronze Age was passing. And it started still in the kind of semi-idealistic uh, era where they would see uh, the Secret Wars and up to Crisis on Infinite Earths. Mm. You know, it was it was in print during those times and also during the rise of the Vigilante Hero and the kind of more edgier superhero stuff, including things like where we've seen that comic books were growing up. And, you know, yeah, people, as you say, is a niche of a niche. Well, of course, where oh, sure. we knew that comics were getting more mature, we've we seen it happen right in front of us. We were there when the ancient magic was written. Uh, you know, and it was especially interesting to see the major leaguers adopting the open-mindedness of the small press. Uh, because... Before the big leaguers caught on, you know, independent press and very small publication comics yeah. had been doing really daring material for years. Okay, I just even going back into the 1960s. Heavy Metal Magazine. Oh, well, all right. There's another example. You know, heavy with art and story, which was primarily creator-driven and oh, And owned. the old Tank Girl strips, uh, I believe those were featured in Love and Rockets. 2080. Oh, 2080. Yeah. Well, yeah, but you know, it, again, Love and Rockets. Uh, these were things that, you know, it, obviously a thing was already happening that was just underneath the surface, and it wasn't being given the major venues uh, that it needed. And at long last, I, I think it was very interesting to see the big leaguers kind of wrestle with the decision. Like, once we do this, you know, the lid is off. Yeah, and in the Champions 3rd Edition print run, you can see the changes that were being made in the comic industry as well as this comic superhero genre itself. Which made it a good target for the, the podcast. Yeah, and that's why we're going for the third edition. If I had to direct anybody uh, to Champions nowadays, I would definitely go with the new version of Champions, the sixth edition, which is very approachable and much better written than the kind of <laughs> math-heavy, kludgy third edition. <laughs> oh. Yeah, you. I was just working a character up for it the other day, and oh, I was like, oh man, why am I doing this to myself? Uh, you don't need your MIT. Uh, you know, yeah, it, it 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 worked out fine, and after a while, old memories uh, <laughs> and uh, muscle memories started coming into play. But yeah, it, it takes a little bit to the nightmare subsided. But you know, it's it's there, and and uh, you know, it's what I want to do. So. Hopefully my players will appreciate it, and maybe I'll uh, we will revisit it in another podcast. But yeah, thank you for your attention to detail, and no uh, acrimony or anger given in differing opinions here. Just I, I will always gravitate a little bit more to Frank Miller's Year One Batman than Dark Knight Returns because I really, as much as I like both of them, I think Frank Miller really did a great job with Batman Year One, and. Uh, you know, it has nothing to do with his political aspirations. But again, here we are spending a whole lot of time talking about a guy that, while he had a monumental effect in comics in the long term, I think that uh, 
The Watchmen is a better story and it holds up a lot better. Alan Moore ended up doing a lot of great work after Watchmen because some people say that he was there to destroy the superhero genre. Hey, if you haven't looked at Tarim uh, Strong comics that he did that run after that and some of the other stuff that he did for various other comic companies. Heck, I was just uh, reading uh, the new Conan, King Size Conan from Marvel, and I seen Kevin Eastman wrote a wonderful Conan story in that. Ah. I gave that to you, right? Yes. Yeah, that was a great story that Kevin Eastman did. And, you know, that's a guy from that age as well. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> before it was a cartoon. But... Oh, was was that who that was? Yeah. See, I, I was not a uh, reader of that. Uh, yeah, so, TNT. you know, those people are still kicking around and making good stuff. So, you know, there's plenty of life left in the comic industry when Which, we ended it. That uh, large Conan, uh, I highly recommend it. Uh, having seen it myself, uh, you know, we're in unilateral agreement on this one. Uh, uh, that right. is a great outing. Uh, they, yeah, they the did King a really good job. Conan is totally like it is absolutely the correct amount of bang for the buck. It is good product. I would recommend anybody would enjoy reading that. Yeah, and maybe we'll do uh, our next comic segment. We we should do the sword and sorcery genre in comics and how it relates to some of the gaming stuff. It, it influenced me quite a bit. Oh, certainly. Um, coming up with new scenarios, I would read Savage Sword of Conan and like, hey, here's a good idea uh, to steal from my games. So, Oh, absolutely. Uh, the old black and white. Uh, oh, yeah. The big mags. Yeah. Yeah, the yeah. early, uh, you know, like this Conan. But yeah. The, those were fantastic. But the annuals, uh, they're doing, uh, I think they quit with Savage Sword of Conan at uh, Marvel now and they're just doing the Conan. But there's also Savage Avengers, which I never thought I would like as much as I did. Wolverine. Conan, uh, Beast, and um, Black Panther, all back in the Hyborian Age with Ulta Doom. Oh, dear. Mm. All right. I, I'm going to give them credit for the whole mashup. But yeah. I, I, I hear you with the, I'm not sure I would like that because I'm, I'm feeling a I didn't know about if it. I, how I would feel about it. I thought this is, could be really bad, but uh, they've shown some stuff. So there is, like I said, if there was another... Uh, person that uh, gave me a direct message on Twitter said that they thought that I was being kind of a downer on new comics. I'm like, nah, nah, nah. Uh, Savage Avengers shows that there's still plenty of life left in this genre. No matter what anybody will say, we've hmm. never slipped off the edge. There's always good people like Tom King with Batman to come in and start writing good stories again. And also people uh, capable of taking an idea like the Savage Avengers and putting them together and making a great story. Hmm. I shall have to have a peek myself at some point. Yes, I have a lot I, of that, back issue collecting to do because I just picked up uh, the newest issue and uh, as a lark, and I was because I was watching uh, the Pabst reference with Conan making the rounds. So, but all right, uh, yeah, thanks a lot, Jason. I think we're uh, going to move on a little bit. So what are we going to do for topic? Yeah, uh, you gave us a lot to talk about, Jason. Almost a whole topic we could, uh, or <laughs> episode we could do on that alone. Although probably sometime we probably should sit down and do a uh, call in with you, and uh, put that up there. That might probably be good for the ratings. Oh yeah. So what's our topic tonight? I hear somebody talking about a new MMORPG or LARP uh, oh. called. Uh, oh oh, just the hot new release. Or, oh yeah. Well, I I don't know if it's. Hot so much, but uh, oh man, you know it, it just just 
began distribution in 25 states this week. Winter, the MMORPG. Oh, yeah? Everybody's playing it. Uh, the early results are in. They all hate it. <laughs> but uh, all right. But they're know. not putting it down. The, yeah, I, I don't see how that. Uh, I don't see how they could. I mean, it, I don't know if it's an MRPG. You don't pay a subscription price, do you? <laughs> oh, you're paying a price, all right. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people are paying the price right now. Uh, no, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I just had to get that out uh, as soon as I I saw that 25 states had been affected by this. Uh, you know, it, it's terribly unfair because those of us who dwell in the hinterlands of Michigan are well aware of how awful things can really get in the middle of wintertime. And it does not phase us because we have had so much practice dealing with it and we're well prepared for it. And I, I should not laugh because so many people are in such a terrible bind right now. They are just really yeah, being well. put to the test. Uh, but, you know, my fallback tends to be humor in a terrible situation. Uh, so <laughs> the first thing I thought as I saw those headlines was, It's winter! The MMORPG! Millions are playing it right now! Wouldn't it be a LARP, though? Oh, <laughs> well, not to quibble. Okay, that's a so good one, yeah. Winter! The LARP! Uh, in this case, uh, I, I went MMORPG because it's a lot like uh, playing... World of Warcraft, except that you never respawn, so your real job is to, under no circumstances, die. Uh, bundle up, folks. Be careful on the roads. Do what you have to, but uh, be well. <laughs> right on, and uh, hopefully uh, things uh, improve, although there's more winter weather on its way. And with that, uh, like I put on my Facebook page with the Pekupski Phil, Y'all thought I was playing, didn't you? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, Punxsutawney Phil. Punxsutawney, okay. Yeah. Punxsutawney Phil. Uh, the rodent has dissed us. Uh, yeah, which we, we should not have ignored. thought I was playing. Should not have ignored his warnings. Yeah. <laughs> Phil, Punxsutawney Phil says, y'all better come correct. So, <laughs> uh. so anyway, what is our real topic if it's not uh, winner, the MORPG, LRP, LARP? Well, it's actually going to take an examination about something that should seem kind of basic to a lot of people. Literally. And, and that is the starter set. The return of the starter set, more appropriately, in this age. and Yeah, because it's got a climbing relevance. Okay, there was yeah. a time where these were unusual rarities. They were uh, <laughs> tiny little uh, tidbits. Uh, little, like... Oh, flyers almost that like, Hey, here's a little uh, picture of what our game is like. And you know, here, uh, this'll, this'll give you one session to, to get an idea of what the game is like, mm -hmm. but it, you couldn't go any further with it. Hey, that era is gone. And a new era has come into place where starter sets have become lavish productions uh, with considerable replay value uh, that give people a much more robust opportunity to work with a new system and to learn a new game. This is a trend in gaming that I don't think is going to go away. And I mean, neither do you, you know, no. this is, we see this being a part of gaming forevermore. So it's totally worth an examination. Yeah. So, uh, part of our episode was a rebuttal and also a good discussion. Thanks again, Jason. Tip of that. 
Oh, not yeah. a tip of the fedora. No, we don't want to get creepy with it. Just a tip of the hat. No, it's not a uh, flip of the uh, kimono. <laughs> okay, it's not that either. A, a good clarification is needed. <laughs> no somersaults in the kimono today. It's too cold for the kimono. Mm. I'm wearing thermal underwear, so, you know. You're golden. The kilt is on, I guess. All right, so... Yeah, what is the starter set phenomenon? And specifically, uh, starter sets have been around for a while. They sometimes have seen been seen as kitty editions or cheaper editions. And yeah, okay, fine. Uh, the Many of edition. them were so cheap and so small that they were flat out free. They were meant to be... Yeah, Earthdawn had a nice little system where there were four flyers that uh, introduced you to four pre-made characters that could get you right into the game and provide you with the basic stats and... Spell descriptions to start playing the first exploration of a care in Earthdawn. And I thought that was very unique. It was, they were nicely made and quite collectible. I still have them today. Yeah, as it turned out, uh, you know, they... Yeah, they fetch a nice little price on Fleabay, um, if I was ever interested. But I started noticing that when 5th edition uh, came out, Paizo had put out the Pathfinder uh, Ripple playing starter set. And that was filled with a lot of nice stuff, a lot of components to get you started, as well as a small bestiary that almost brought me back to the red box of D&D, not the uh, Frank uh, Metzner edition, but the original one, where you could play a pretty decent-sized campaign out of this box. And it took you from levels 1 to 5. Didn't have all the classes necessarily. You know, of course, you could only use the free gens. But, I mean, hey, it came with uh, B2, Keep on the Borderlands. Was that the one? Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. that was the... Uh, oh, jeez. I always forget his name. It's between the Holmes and the Metzner edition, but uh, Moldvay. Ah, Moldvay Tom edition. Moldvay. Yeah. Uh, the uh, Red Box first edition. With the Arrow Otis or, cover sorry. on it. You know, red box basic D and D, and this is a perfect example. That was the exception to the rule in that era. If you roll the clock back that far, uh, a comprehensive introductory set uh, was not normal. That was no, not and done. basic D and D was separating itself for legal reasons from normal AD and D, which is why they got rid of the Holmes edition, which was more the first starter set. It was meant to be an intro to the AD and D system, but it wasn't fully developed or written yet, so it was a thing. But yeah, uh, the Paizo starter set for Pathfinder, right before fifth edition, was an excellent product. Came with a lot of maps, uh, doodads, and enough accessories and. Booklets to get you into a mini campaign up to 5th, and if you stretch it out, 8th level with some of the supplementary free material online. And then 5th uh, edition happened, and D&D came out with their Essentials, which, okay, it was a nice little mini campaign, but didn't give a lot of replay value. They later came out with a better uh, essential set that came with a lot more components and a more open atmosphere so you could generate things, not the full cast of options that you would have with all the rule books. Yeah, it's one of my only lingering criticisms of the 5th edition releases was the staggered order in which the initial products were released uh, was pretty kludgy. You know, it was very difficult to get the ball rolling and get started as a game master uh, with a game that, like, you may be waiting many, many months before the rest of the components you need to effectively DM are released. However, the initial Essentials starter set uh, 
had it didn't have enough reach much like you said I, I i don't think it had enough meat on the bones to give people what they needed for such a lengthy wait but the core idea behind it was great which was to give people a comparatively low cost uh entry into a game that many people had not really developed a lot of experience with uh or for those who had had experience, it would give them a window into the new system uh, that they could make use of for a while, run a few games, uh, do a little tiny mini campaign. And it also lets you have time to find out what your players' interests are. So it kind of a very lengthy session zero, uh, which certainly people who were considering being DMs at the time uh, could use that kind of practice. Well, I think the first D&D &D Essentials went uh, hand in hand with the War of the Dragon Queen, which I enjoyed that intro campaign. I was really uh, interested in it. Unfortunately, uh, we just didn't explore it very far past no. the first couple sessions. We got the uh, first part of the campaign out, and then you were supposed to go into the Dragon Queen with a little bit more experienced characters, perhaps. However... Uh, hmm. That's not really what the main thrust was, is that you couldn't really play a whole lot out of it other than where what they gave you. And starter sets, I think, with what Paizo did initially, were very, it was very open to what you could develop. If you had an idea and you wanted to do something with it, the tools were there and available to you. Not so much with the other one, but... Yeah. Uh, uh, it came with just a basic... Just, yeah, they just came with a basic... Uh, the, these are the monsters you're going to encounter in this ad, uh, adventure that we set out for you, and that's it. Where the Paizo one actually had a small bestiary in it, and that uh, came up with more than just monsters that you would encounter, even some that you would be hard pressed to encounter. Well, yeah, like that, a uh, Minotaur Ranger, and that was already statted out. And so oh. you're like, ah, boy, like the Minotaur out of Case of Chaos? Yeah, that guy. Woo! <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> yeah, like he needed to be a leveled ranger. Well, that guy from Caves of Chaos was a jerk on his own merits. A jerk on a stick. Anyway, um, I began noticing that a lot more companies were giving a starter set rather than giving the full Monty, so to speak, on the game. Like, they just would, uh, back oh, in the day... Oh, they've got fluttering kimonos of their own where they just hint at and tease and... Hey, and you know what? In fairness, it gives the audience a little time to figure out where they stand, you know? Yeah, and so we talked about the two big uh, games, obviously, with the D&D &D type. Those would be expected to have starter sets because they need to come out with a entry level that isn't so cost-heavy at the first end where you have to get all these books, read them. Here's a set where you can sit down and within just a little bit of time start playing. And that's what you want. And, of course, that's what a starter set should be. But yeah. now a lot of games are giving, like, the Call of Cthulhu um, starter set that just came out a couple of years ago. Now it seems like it was a lot closer. Has a fine assortment of adventures meant to give you and pre-generated characters as well as lavishly illustrated maps and handouts of how to start playing in Call of Cthulhu. And, you know, if there ever was a game that uh, basically needed a character generation system right off the bat, it's called Cthulhu. <laughs> and they make this one a little bit more measured, but yeah. <laughs> uh, 
yeah, you don't want a time-consuming character generation process for a game that is likely to terminate as many of your characters as possible. Oh, my. Uh, well, at least they didn't but, come up with the haunted house scenario. And, uh, <laughs> Scooby-Doo the, in hell. <laughs> I think that bed, I think, uh, as uh, Sandy Peterson says, the bed in the uh, haunted house the haunting scenario has killed more player characters than probably anybody. Yeah, deathbed. Death the yep. bed that eats people. It doesn't eat them, it just kills them. <laughs> Two die six doesn't seem like a whole lot of damage, but it certainly is bad when it comes to Call of Cthulhu. Nonetheless... Uh, Very much so, yes. Yeah, they had a nice product to come out, and it was fairly affordable, but again... Um, it depends what you want to get into. And if you're just experimenting with gaming, you know, when you're doing experimentals, yeah, okay, that allegory left aside. When you're doing different games, a good way to get into them and, and try to understand what it's about and how it plays is with a starter set. And uh, the latest one is the Cyberpunk Red, which is a complete reboot of the Cyberpunk 2020 and... Uh, Although I have my complaints with a little bit of the Cyberpunk right for what it does, it is very good. It, it really only uh, gives you one class, but it gives you an assortment of characters and a high replay value out of it, where you can come up with your own scenarios pretty quickly by just using the basics and the box set. And I think that is a clever use of it. Um, and if you really like it, of course, you can get the uh, the main rule book, which I understand is just back in print. So after, ah. yeah, they sold through it completely crazy go nuts figures and the demand was so high that they're still having a hard time meeting demand. Wow. So, I, that is very exciting to me because I, I just, I, I cannot wish yeah. them enough. Uh, good luck. Uh, they obviously don't need much in the way of luck though. They've, they've delivered good product. People want it. And yeah, I mean, their real problem right now is just, <laughs> all right. Maybe this time we'll print enough for people. Yeah, but uh, Good Warhammer... Plan. Great problem to have. 40,000 uh, Roleplay, Wrath and Glory come up with a starter set, as well as Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay has a starter set. And so those are getting people interested. And again, it's people who might normally not be interested in those games can pick up the starter set. And even somebody who's nominally not uh, the forever game master can pick it up and run a session or two and Correct. get people interested in it. This This... I think is you've, you've touched on a point that I considered one of the most important, which is this radical variation in the way in which games are released. Uh, you know, instead of the, uh, the, it's all or nothing, you know, one mm -hmm. of these books is useless without the others. Uh, that's been the tradition for a very large portion of my life as a gamer. Uh, breaking that trend and putting starter editions in a price category that the novitiate or you know part-time dm the, the, the kid casual player the kid who like all right they've played but they were giving some thought to dming uh, they would like to you know maybe try this out uh but they don't want to drop uh a hundred to two hundred dollars on all the necessary rule books. Uh, when we were kids, about sixty bucks is what it took to have the bare bones three piece three book combo. Mm. Uh, 
you know, 60 bucks tops. Sometimes you could get it well below that. You, you could nudge it down to 40 or 50 if you were really, you know, tight with a buck. Uh, anymore, you know, about 100 bucks is the, the required minimum to have like a, a three-book set. Uh, more likely to be closer to 150 or, in some cases, as much as 200 uh, there's a few games that, that have steeper requirements and a great many oh, have yeah. lower, but uh, point being, that's an almost insurmountable obstacle in price, so you have to be sure. And people who are passionate about DMing a wide variety of games, this is a sacrifice they're willing to make. But again, it limits your market potential. And this trend, the starter set... Um, gives people that window period where their commitment is lower, they can afford what they're getting, and they can work with it, read it, experiment with it, try a few games, uh, you know, get their toes wet. And that is a priceless change to me. I'm really very happy with it because... uh, Coaxing people into the creative role that they have to adopt as a DM is challenging. I mean, it is a piece of work. You have to love it. You have to have passion about it, or you're not really going to get the most out of it, and you'll probably drop off and say, be like, eh, this isn't so much for me. Making it a more approachable thing to try out, I, it cannot hurt. I consider it a unilateral good. So that's that's the the big shift in paradigm that uh, I'm so pleased with, and I'm glad you brought that point up. Yeah, with things like uh, Traveler box set, it's pretty much most of the game right there now. The Traveler Second Edition by Mongoose. Oh boy, how do I start? Well, <laughs> yay! I really like Mongoose what they did with it, and the Second Edition box set is. Completely sold out. They're not going to reprint it. As a matter of fact, as what I understand, it was almost too good. There are some... Yeah, you can go on YouTube YouTube, uh, and look up uh, Seth Skorkowski's travel review of the box set and see what I mean. And uh, he later has a retraction when he does a review of the whole system. Yeah, there are some things missing from that box set. But anyhow, uh, the Traveler box starter set was, man, that's a lot... For your money. You're just not getting a sample of the game. You're getting the whole game. And uh, minus some components. But that this allows game companies to put their game out there in the heightened market that is out there with uh, D&D now. Uh, I think, uh, what is it? They just had a review of what is being played and 5th edition is massively just dominating. And on the Discord, Twitch, and other fantasy grounds, and all the others that we talked about. Oh yeah, D and D has taken the lead once again. Uh, and, a lead that was once held for some time by Pathfinder. Uh, which... Well, for, yeah, for a while they did, and uh, obviously D and D needed to be back up there. I think that is the main point. But uh, high tides rise all ships, raise all ships, I should say. And with that in mind. You want to have an environment that other people can get their message out there and kind of float their boat. And I think the starter set is a good way to do that because not only does it empower DMing, new DMs or game masters, if you whatever you want to call it yourself, 
but it also puts the idea out there that there are other games to play and many more avenues to approach and a larger industry just benefits everybody as a whole. I know that uh, ever since third edition put that out there, it's been controversial, but I think that the marketing values out there show it. Uh, there's also Mutants and Masterminds, uh, beginner set. There's other games, too, that are now probably going to start looking at that model. And it's going to be encouraging to see how many dip their toes into that market. Because putting out a, a, a set like that is no longer just like, okay, it's a throwaway. It's a cheap set. It's not going to really have much value. Yeah, put that the You're putting and... your hook out there into that stream. You might catch a few fish. And if you don't have a hook out in the stream, you're not going to catch anything. And so by putting this out there, I think it encourages game companies to not only expand their market, but also look at, I don't want to use the term cashing in, because I don't think this uh, this market right now is a sustainable one. But it can be sustainable if enough people get into it. And I think it's encouraging that companies need to get out there and kind of throw their hat in the ring so that they uh, use other allegories, I guess. <laughs> To, to get people interested in more than just D&D and Pathfinder and many of the mainstream games. And to show the strength of the gaming market, the role-playing game, as a vehicle in itself as not only a industry model, but also as a vehicle for fun and imagination. And that's what it's meant to be. Now, i got to say, uh, the, the great majority of game companies or individual games uh, have not yet used the starter set technique. Uh, admittedly, the ones that have are tend to be the larger players in the room and then a few of the middle ranks. Uh, not all of the examples we've given were you know, glowing reports. I mean, we had a few examples here that I think were not necessarily the best product they could have been as starter sets. Uh, but it's still a new form. You know, it's a new concept, a thing that hadn't been done a great deal. In the intervening years between the red box set and now, the concept of the starter set has had its biggest leap forward in just the last five years. So I'm, I'm going to tentatively say that we're going to see a lot more of these. I really believe that this is going to become kind of the almost pro forma standard uh, and hopefully well thought out and well fleshed out way to begin the release of a new game or even a, just a new edition of a new game. Sure. And I, I hope that that's definitely a part of our future. Oh, yeah. I, uh, look, I, I don't think I gave any... Uh, bad reviews. I no. think that the Cyberpunk Red Kickstart set could have been better, but it's just fine, and you can run many different games out of that. If you're, if that's what you got, and you're got a little bit of imagination, it's not going to slow you down in the slightest. Seeing more than one class covered in it, yes, that would have been nice. But <laughs> hey, you know, the Netrunner is one that probably needs a, a more detailed look than say the Solo or Nomad. Um, but that aside. You've, uh, 
it's kind of a refreshing change to see that people are treating like Casium or treating the starter sets as something more than just a disposable product that yeah. they can put extra income into. That actually it's a good way to capture other people's interest in your games and put it forward. And of course, the smaller players, like you said, you got the big boys and the mid-level players that are going to be able to put out uh, like Cubicle 7 with their starter sets. And the smaller game companies are just, yeah, they're just going to have to throw it out there. They're just going to, that's their product and that's what they got. But that you get that message out and you have a vehicle that increases people's awareness away from just the one, you know, 850 pound gorilla in the room, Wizards of the Coast, <laughs> and put out an idea that there are other games out there that you can play and that, that there is a more approachable and economical format to investigate these games. Hey, we always make it sound like we're dealing drugs, like it's a gateway product. It gets them interested, then you pull them in. Yeah, it always has a creepy connotation to me, and I can never get that out of my head, so shame on me. Hold but, out for the bike. Yeah. Don't take the free candy. But it's a, it's an interesting trend, and that's what we wanted to talk about. So No, it, it, it is. I, I think, looking back, that we're going to look back on these last few years... Uh, the overriding success of 5th edition D&D. Uh, I'm not saying that there won't come another crunch where gaming has a nosedive, you know, these things ebb and flow, but I, I am going to say that people are going to look back on these last few years uh, as a time of very rapid, very radical change in the perception and marketability of role-playing games uh, for the better uh, that things made a rapid yeah, I improvement. Think, yeah, I think and a we're huge on both intrusion into markets they had not been present in before. Well, yeah, you can get uh, D and D figures at Walmart right now. Yeah, I know, right? Right, and you know, uh, you know, people say, "Well, they're at Target." Yeah, they're on their Target store, and yeah. a lot of these are also available only on online and tar- uh, uh, Walmart. But uh, just the other day, uh, yeah, I was perusing through Wally World and. I decided to skip through the toy section right there. They were the die-cast pre-painted D&D miniatures. And I was like, oh, well, that's nice. Oh, you know, that's painted That's no fun. Well, you know. Oh, well, all right. Look, Nobody has the everybody. patience of Job and yeah. <laughs> the time of the gods to paint all their miniatures. Come the on. eyes of, like, a hawk. Huh. Wow. So, that it's there, I think this is a good time. And I think the market is sustainable if people put themselves forward. I think that is the big... Uh, take away from this that we'll see if it improves the market because definitely we don't want to go back to the lean days no <laughs> yeah we'll we will fight we will fight valiantly to prevent things from going back to that dark era yeah so sustainability is the watchword here and and more than just wizard of the coast and paizo yeah are involved in this fight now if i were going to like give one cautionary tale which is you know uh, Start them young. <laughs> oh, like the cigarette company. Yes. Oh, yeah. if only we had that. Yeah, gotta get them young. <laughs> uh, the cautionary tale would be that uh, the thing that would spoil this would be people falling into the trap of, yeah, you just got to release a starter set. You don't really have to put that much work into it. I, I think if people in game development and game companies pay close attention, Uh, It's the starter sets with the most meat on the bone that have had the largest appeal, have received the most critical praise, uh, and (laughs) turned out to be an excellent investment 
for the game companies that produced them. And if they're observant of that trend and continue to release good starter set type product uh, and don't just rest on their laurels, then this is going to be a thing that will pay off for many companies over the years. Uh, the worst case scenario would be one where it's taken for granted is like, oh, well, we've got to release some kind of starter product, slap it together, get this pig in the can. And then that kind of slapdash attitude leads to, per usual, gamers are a sensitive bunch and it's material we really interact with. This is not passive entertainment the way a television product or a movie product is. Or video game. Yeah. And... You know, the degree to which gamers interact with uh, a product is so great that if a terrible job is done preparing it, the gamers will know. <laughs> you well, can yeah, trust and the them. allegory of the video game is on what I'm specifically talking about is some of the other uh, small market stuff that, uh, you know, yeah, you're going to play it a couple times and that's it and you're going to move on to something else. And maybe... Uh, the other point that probably should be strongly worded in this is that if you're looking to make a mark in the video or uh, role-playing game world, just like the video game world, come up with a really strong product right out the gate, even if it is a uh, quick start set that gets people interested in the main product, you'll be fine. Because also what you're trying to do is not just get the uninitiated, but get people who are already playing other games who are looking for something new and different from what their normal experience is and get them put this into their hands that is where the payoff is because before you had to convert people to kind of the role-playing aspect like what is a role-playing game and yeah you always have to include that little passage and now maybe less than it's less necessary than ever but it still has to be put in there because you're always going to have somebody stumbling across like i've never played a role-playing game before oh, what is yeah. this uh, you could run across someone who is you know just very new to it it's still worth having the definitions in there. Well, yeah, but maybe you'll catch somebody's eye who is a, just a little uh, looking for something a little different than their normal uh, fantasy role-playing game. So something like Cyberpunk or Traveler could definitely be up their alley. But all right, so we've beaten that one to death and left its corpse <laughs> in a hastily dug grave. So uh, we, we mauled it like a starving wild cat and then dragged it into the underbrush. <laughs> So, once again, we hope you enjoyed our podcast and our presentation. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, which I'm probably sure you have any and of many of varied of those, you can direct them to our Facebook page, to the Dicer Screaming, where you can also find some of our memes and uh, you know, usual shenanigans that we're up to <laughs> on Facebook, as well as get a hold of us on Twitter and all the usual places there. But also, you can download the Anchor app or any of your favorite uh, Anchor Anchor affiliates like Spotify or even, I, I guess, well, we're on I, Apple. A lot of people download us on Apple Tunes. But um, oh. find our podcast, find that uh, follow button, and <laughs> softly walk up behind it, press its shoulders, whisper in its ear, I just maxed out your credit card, and hit that follow button. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's terrible. That's a terrible thing to whisper to it. You'll just stress it. Oh. Yep, but hit that follow button and uh, you'll be updated with all our podcasts from whenever and whenever and however we get them out. All right. Well. But until the next time, may, may the, the dice, dice always roll in your, your favor. favor. We're out. See ya. See ya.